Well, again, good morning. Thank you all for coming out. Rachel and I are very uh, appreciative. It's been great to be part of the family uh, celebration and uh, also to be able to be here with you. I've heard uh, much about your church. Bill's a friend, and uh, one of the ministries that we have, uh, the ministry that I founded and run, Church Multiplication Ministries, one of the things we do is, is uh, train church planner coaches. Of course, he's going to Scotland to be part of a church planning endeavor over there, and it's going to be coming to our, still will be coming uh, in September to our training. Um, I don't know if there's anything I can teach him, but at least he's going to come for certification and have that under his belt. So you've heard the word of God preached. I'm going to ask you if you bow your head, and I'm going to ask you if you would pray. Okay? I'm going to lead us in a prayer, but if you could take this risk, the prayer I'm going to ask you to pray to God out loud is a prayer that is simply this, Lord, speak to me. Now, some of you may not be church. Some of you may not have been detached from church for a while, and you're not sure if God's real or if any of this stuff is is reality or whatever, but I'm still going to ask you to take the risk and to ask that God might simply show up today and speak to your life and speak to your heart. So, if you could, bow your head, your heart, if you need to. You don't have to close your eyes if you're afraid somebody's going to steal something from you. But would you pray this prayer out loud to the Lord? Lord, speak to me. Amen. So a friend of mine named Corey was, uh, was at a conference. He was telling me about this. He, he said that uh, he went to this uh, large conference. He was somewhere between two or 3,000 people sitting in a room. And the speaker got up and he asked the people this question. He said, we're going to play a word game. I want to play a word game with you. And uh, I'm going I'm to say a phrase or say a word. And your immediate response, the word that immediately comes into your mind, I want you to say back to me. He said, are you ready? Now, I'm not asking you to play this game with me. I don't want to hear, but I want to tell you what they said. But you're going to have a word once I say this to you, all right? So the word he said to me is, okay, everybody, ready? All right. And he said, human beings. And immediately response back to him was, sinners. Two to 3,000 people, sinners. Now, that's remarkably sad. I don't know what word you thought of when I just played that little game with you, but that is not how the gospel story begins. That's not how your story begins. Now, some of you might have been raised in a conservative Christian church, Christian home, and you might have mitigated the phrase, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. But again, that's not how your story started. That's not the beginning point. Who you think you are or how you define yourself is the starting point in your life. It determines how you go on from there living out your life. This is remarkably, diff- this is remarkably simple and yet profound. Who do you think you are? I probably told you the story, those of you who remember way back, you know, the story of the young boy, the little Jimmy was in uh, Sunday school class. The little Sunday class was singing, you know, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam, a sunbeam. I won't sing it. A sunbeam, a sunbeam. Jesus wants me for a sunbeam. And a little Jimmy was sitting there, and he wasn't singing. And the teacher, finally, when they were done, went over and said, Jimmy, why aren't you singing? What's the problem? He said, hands crossed, pouty face. I want to be a sunbeam. I want to be a fireman. <laughs> how you see yourself determines how you live your life. And so the question before the house this morning is, who do you think you are? Now, let me suggest to you that our parents, we just baptized a baby, our parents have a huge influence on our self-identity. 
the names they give us, the affirmations they give us, you're so smart, you're so pretty, you're so good looking, you're so courageous, you're such a great athlete, you're such a funny person, all of that begins to form in our minds our identity. Also, the shaming and the name calling that parents can give our children. You're worthless, or you're never going to make it in life, you're never going to amount to anything. All of those things shape the way we see ourselves and shape the identity from which we go on. Maybe it was the silence of a father or the silence of a mother. Now, in our Western enlightened culture, our parents have an enormous influence on us. But in a traditional non-Western culture, it's even more pronounced. I mean, the role in the family, the, the family honor and the shame of, the, of, just of, uh, of uh, misusing the family name, the dishonor. People say, I identify with my people. All of that is, is extremely important in shaping identity. And we're seeing some of this in the clash of immigrants that are coming to America, coming from a traditional society, trying to raise their kids in an individualistic society. Because the modern culture today is highly individualistic. The broader Western culture is an impersonal or non-personal one. And so we're left, we're left to decide for ourselves in Western society, you get to decide who you are. It's up to you. And don't ever let anybody tell you what you're to believe about yourself. You have to find yourself. You have to, you have to, I remember years ago when my kids were in middle school and I went to visit their classroom and there was, this is, this is 20 plus years ago. And in their classroom was, was hanging the poster by William, by uh, William Henley. You remember the one? And it ended with, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. That was 20 plus years ago. Well, let me tell you, that's died into the wool now of our culture. You get to choose. In fact, it's the highest moral ethic of our culture today. Be true to yourself. You have to be true to yourself. You have to follow your own heart. Now, I'm not making this up. You know this to be true about our culture. You're instructed. Don't ever let anyone tell you what you have to be. Not your parents, not your teachers, not your friends, not church, not even God. No one. And it sits and it saturates in our culture. And some of you may not believe me, so let me read to you some of the words of one of the most contemporary philosophers of our time. Listen closely. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and to break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. So, what are we left with in our modern approach? Don't start singing, Pete. Don't start singing. What are we left with with this modern approach to discovering who we really are? Do we look to our feelings? So, so parents to their children, well, don't worry about what the kids say about you at school. You, you just feel good about yourself. Really? Is that what we're left to? I mean, just our own feelings? Or you need to follow your dreams, your desires. Really? Did any of you in the room that are older than five ever become what you dreamt of when you were five? 
course not. Mark and Jen, listen. You have the opportunity now in a rare moment in history to be able to teach Wyatt something that he can build and center his identity on that will last for the rest of his life. It's found in the text that the Apostle Paul, that was just read for us, that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Colossae, a church, let me give you some background, a church he never, he never visited. He never went there. The church had been planted church planting, by a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras had been in Ephesus, where Paul had been planting a church and starting a church. He had a large gathering there in Ephesus, and, and uh, Colossae was about 100, 100 miles away, which was a long distance in their day, but it was, a, it was a wealthy area. And so there was a lot of commerce between these cities. And Epaphras, evidently, had gone to Ephesus. He'd listened to Paul preach and talk about Jesus. Epaphras was, was uh, we don't know a lot about him, but probably raised in a very normal Roman culture or Greek culture. He'd heard the gospel, and he went back to his hometown. And there, he began to tell other people about this Jesus that he'd just heard about. And people there began to become Christians. A man by the name of Philemon became a Christian. We have a book in the Bible named after him, a letter that Paul wrote to him. Now, the people in Colossae are much like the people we have today. They were religious people, Jewish people, who had converted to Christianity, and then there were a bunch of non, non-believing Roman people who had grown up in a Greek culture. Greek culture at the time was polytheistic. There were gods everywhere. There was a god for everything. Everywhere you went, there were statues and, and monuments. And, and it was all part of their culture, this polytheism. There are many gods to believe in. There's many gods that you can... And they lived, according to these gods, a very hedonistic, lovers of self, materialistic world. They valued what we value, wealth and prosperity. And the Greek gods were everywhere. The Roman Empire, when it conquered, it adopted them into their culture. In fact, they're still around today. Any of you wearing Nike sneakers? That's a Greek god, Nike. We know about the Apollo space program, named after Apollo, the Greek god. Our U.S. Supreme Court has the goddess Themis sitting on the front, Lady Justice. If you listen to Pandora Radio, Pandora was a Greek goddess. If you, if you uh, uh, know about Achilles' heel, that sensitive part, you go to the movies, you've seen, a, you've seen Hercules, you've, gone, uh, to the, you know, you've heard about the Trojan horse, all of those things were Greek gods. Now these people, just they, they centered their life around those things. They, they, they saw that as a, as a, of their existence. This explain, these gods explained the universe to them, explained to them the weather, explained to them food, explained to them crops, it, ex, it explained to them everything about their culture. And the Apostle Paul, we didn't read it, but in the same book of Coloss, in, in, uh, in Colossians, he says, this is what he writes to them. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. In other words, listen, folks, your culture may be telling you one thing. Live for yourself because in our culture, there is no God. In their culture, there were lots of gods, but you still had to live for yourself. That's a deceptive, Paul says, a way of life. It's a human-made principle of this world. It's a self-oriented life And it leads to disaster. Here's what your true identity is. That's what Paul's about to tell us. And it's crucial to the formation of who you are because you won't be who you were meant to be 
if you don't know who you are. Let me give you the principle. You can memorize it. If you memorize it, you can go home. Because I was told that I had an hour. And uh, those chairs, you, you ain't, those are not one-hour chairs, right? Yeah. You know, one of, the joys that I, one of the joys that you should have now is that I now sit in church as a listener to a guy preaching longer than I ever preached. So I know what you're going through, right? So hang with me. Memorize this principle, and we can have coffee and donuts or whatever else is over there. All right. Now I lost my place. Oh, here's the principle. I'm going to go back to, we had a motto when I, when I started Metro North Church, and I don't know if it's still there or not, everything, but it's not just a motto. It's a, real, it's a central reality truth of how we live. So let me incorporate the principle. Living out of your core disciple identity, in other words, who you are if you're a follower of Jesus, who you are as a disciple, if you live out of that core, once you know what that is, that's essential for Jesus. That's essential for you to be enjoying life with God and with other people. That's the core of what God made us to be a participate in in this world. To enjoy the life that we could have with the God who made us and with other people. And so when you understand, when you get it down into your being, that my core identity is to, is to understand what that is so that I can live out of that in an, in an enjoying a life with God and enjoying a life with other people, life will not be a disaster. So what is it? I'm going to suggest to you there's three parts in what Paul tells us. And these are not points like if you get number one, you don't have to worry about number two or number three. They're actually operating like a, like, like a dance step. You've got to have all three bouncing around in your inner world. And if you neglect one of them, if you overemphasize one of them, you get out of kilter and then you dance like a one-legged chicken or something. You don't, it doesn't look right. It doesn't operate right. But when you get all three and they're, and they're operating, you can look at it and go, now that person is living, a, is living a full life. That person's really living. That person is... So what does Paul say they are? And, and how do I incorporate them into the way my life should operate? Okay? The first one is this. He tells us right at the very beginning, it was read to us. Jesus Christ created you. We saw it in verse 15 through 18. This is how, now listen, this is how gospel story begins. Your story begins in the beginning God created. You are of supernatural origin. Your story, gospel story doesn't begin, and your story does not begin with, you are a sinner. Your story begins with, Jesus Christ created you. He made you. Now, if you're younger than 40 years of age, you're the first full generation that's grown up in a totally material view of the universe and all things. Culture, education, songs, entertainment, movies, TV. It's a natural world we live in. There's no God. It doesn't exist. Our parents in the faith gave us a thing called a catechism. Now, don't, if, you're not a, if, you're, if, you're, if you grew up Baptist or something else and you hear catechism, don't get wigged out. It's not like a cult thing. It's, it's a teaching tool. It's a tool that God gave through our fathers and mothers in the faith years and years ago, a teaching tool by which we could tell our kids, this is, this is what the faith is. This is what God is. This is who, who Jesus is. 
It begins in the children's catechism. They had to break it down because it's really heavy duty in the adult version. But in the children's version, it begins with, who made you? We teach our kids. God made me. Second question is, well, what else did God make? And the answer is, you know, God made all things. Well, why did God make you in all things? By the way, my daughter Julie, some of you know Julie, she was teaching my, at that time, our two-year-old grandson. She says, so Jaden, who made you? God. What else did God make? Bacon. That's right. God made bacon. Yep, good answer. But let's go back to the other thing. Um, you know why they did that? You know why they went to the trouble to write that out? Because they knew something that we've kind of forgotten in our culture. They knew. They understood. They got it. That if you really wanted to know yourself, you have to know God. And if you want to know God, you have to know yourself. Again, Wyatt's parents made a vow today to pray that reality, to live that reality, and to love that reality and to teach that reality into that young man's life. We have that obligation too as parents and as grandparents. Last night, a few of us got together. We, we, were, uh, we had dinner together and everything. And, you know. now, now, now when, old, when people get together my age, you know, we don't show pictures of our kids. We're showing pictures of our grandkids. You know, like kids, who cares about them? Let me show you the picture of my grandkids. This is a generational thing. All right. In Paul's first century, there wasn't no God. There was a lot of gods. In our culture, in our modern culture, they would throw out that story. They would throw out gospel story that there's a God, and they'd throw out that there's a lot of different gods. They would say that because they're saying in our culture there is no God. In fact, in our culture, with a material explanation, you are self-made. You were, in a sense, a chemical composition of DNA and genetics that somehow mysteriously exploded into existence. Now, you don't have any other story to follow if you, if you come from a purely materialistic world. Your whole story, then, is a cosmic accident. But this story says, it begins with, let us, not in this passage, but in the start of the story, let us make man, this is God speaking, in our image. Let us make man in our image. We're image bearers of God. In the Greek world, in the polytheistic world, the, the gods created uh, they, in the Greek world, they created their gods. They made up their gods in the image of humans. Their gods looked like humans. They had human uh, responses and, you know, desires and, and all those things. Colossians 1.15. Jesus Christ is the true icon, the true image of the invisible God. And he made you. And he made you. The true image the visible image of the invisible God made you in His image, in God's image. 
I've been uh, spending since January all of my reading and time with God has been in the book of Job. I just recently was in Job 38. I found this little verse. It was incredible. I'd never seen it before. So Job, remember Job's had this problem with God. His life fell apart. He's been attacked. All this, his world caved in. He's been complaining to his three friends and all those things. And so now God is speaking to Job. Job, God finally shows up in Job's life. And he's asking him, he's put on your big boy pants, Job. I'm going to ask you some questions now, okay? And, and, and then he says, this was, where, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Okay, I'd read that before. No job, you know, God's asking Job, you know, so put on your big boy pants. Let me ask you a question. Were you around when I created everything? But I'd never seen this one, part of the verse. While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. We just had a little insight into what happened at the very moment. I see the blue line. We just saw, we just read what happened at the very moment that God created everything that we see. Have you, have you ever been to a stadium? You've gone to, your, you know, to a, a, a football game, a baseball game, a rock concert or something, and their, your team scores, and the roar of 80,000 people. I mean, just the right? They score a touchdown, you know. If you're a, if you're a Tiger fan, you know, they, beat, they finally beat the Gamecocks, finally, you know, and, and you right? There's this incredible roar. That's the picture that is painted in Job. That when God created, the angels exploded. Like, wah! The Genesis narrative says that at each stage of creation, after the roar of the angels, God said, and it was good. Who is good? It doesn't get any better than this. And we were made, the Bible says, to be in relationship with one another. You were made for community. You were made with unique gifts and abilities. And when God got to, now listen, the creative narrative, when God got to, he created man and Adam and Eve. You know what God said? This is very good. I mean, the roar went from they just hit a grand slam home run, you know, to they just beat the Yankees for the World Series, and it was Incredible. Incredible. Would that change the way you see yourself? Would it change the way you see yourself that, the, that he, okay, I believe in God, but he's not the single person God who's making creatures to serve him and to, because he needs somebody to help him out. That a God actually created me to be in relationship with him, to be connected to me, to him, and to enjoy him and to be to be, to be friends with the God who makes everything we see. Would that not change the way you see yourself? Yeah, it should. Let me suggest something to you folks. I don't have time to develop it. God does not want to use you. Just ponder that for a while. God doesn't use people. God, we're not some impersonal machine. God's story is compelling to us because God wants to be. You were made into his likeness to enjoy being in all of his glory. 
we were made to get God. But our first parents ruined it. They ruined our image. It's marred. We're alienated from God. We get alienated from one another. We get alienated personally. We have shame and guilt and all that stuff happens in us. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, said no to God. We don't want that. They threw them off. They became rebellious, cosmic, treason people, and, and that ruined everything, the whole thing. We've gone our own way. We've been taken captive. And all the self-naming and all the self-declaration you can make that you're the master of your own fate, you're the captain of your old soul, you can try, you can put that on, but let me tell you, you'll be just like the writer of that poem, William Henley, ended up committing suicide. Because that life leads to a disaster. It leads to a disaster. You are not self-made. Jesus Christ made you his image for enjoying life with him and with others with beauty and meaning and connection. Okay, you got to move on. I got way more than I, than I could say on that. But secondly, I want you to see in verse 13, and 19 through 23, is that Christ rescued you. Christ made you for his own glory, but he's also rescued you. Now, have you ever thought that you needed to be rescued? I mean, has it ever dawned on you that I even actually needed to be rescued from anything? Maybe I can work hard and save myself. Maybe I've got myself boxed in. Maybe I may, I've made a few mistakes, and if I correct them, or if I start doing some more good, in other words, I've done some bad things, but if I do more good things, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will then accept me. And that's the way we think, and that's the way religions think. Some of you might not even sense any need to be rescued. You don't even know you're a slave to your own desires and your own sins. Now, one of the things that's true about being rescued is you can't rescue yourself. You, got, you can work at trying to improve yourself, but you can't rescue yourself. You remember the, just recently the story of the wild boar soccer team? They were in the cave in Thailand, and they're down, and they're, you know, they're in this cave. And uh, the 12 boys and the, the Thai Navy SEALs had to go in there and get them out of there and their coach. And they had to get them out because they were going to die. There was certain death was coming to them, and they needed to be rescued, and they needed somebody to come in and save them. Now, if the boys had gone in there, gotten lost, and the coach, and then the boys and the coach just kind of eventually found their way out and, and swam out of the, of the cave, there wouldn't have been a story because they didn't need to be rescued, right? They just swam out themselves. But they were helpless, and they needed someone to come in and rescue. Verse 13, for God rescued us he delivered us. He liberated us from the dominion of darkness. Someone here may not be a follower of Jesus. And I would guess that you're probably not into demonology. You might not be into witchcraft. You might not be wanted for some major crime. But I suspect, I suspect that you do feel there's an alienation. Some, somewhere in your, you're here at church because you're going, you know, there's a gap. I know there's a gap between me and God. you know you need to be rescued. Here's why you know you need to be rescued. You know why you feel you need to be rescued? Because you need to be rescued. That's why you feel that way. Now, those of us that have been rescued, why did, why did God rescue us? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians, the book that Epaphras, the church that Epaphras had been in and gotten saved in, he says there, in love, God has predestined us to be adopted. In other words, everybody we know wants to be loved. God loved us. That's why he rescued us. That's why he's come for us. Now, the, the, 
The amazing thing about God's love is this. We say, well, God's love is unconditional. You know, it's, God's love is unconditional, but it's, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's greater than that. It is that. But it's better than that. God's love is contra-conditional. In other words, God loves us in spite of what we are. God loves us contrary to the condition that we have. Not just unconditionally. He goes beyond unconditional. It's a contra-conditional kind of love. And he transferred us, the Bible says, into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. So that we're loved the way God the Father loves his Son, that's how we're loved. Now, everybody wants to be loved. Would you love to be loved by a father who loves his son as closely as God the Father loves his son, Jesus Christ? All right, for time's sake, speed up to verse 20. And then we have reconciliation. We have peace with God. We're forgiven. God himself has closed the gap on our behalf. Every other religion says you have to do something. Christianity says no. Jesus Christ came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's the hero of the story. I don't know what road you're on now. I don't know what past you have. I don't know what, <clears throat> I don't know what you've done. And I know you can't change the past. But you can change, but listen. God can change the future that that past is taking you to. He can't, yes, I can't make up for my past. But the future that I have, God can change that future. Because he can make peace with God and reconciliation with us. Then verse 22, another key point, substitution. I was once alienated, but now by Christ's physical body, not some mythical God, through the death on a cross, Jesus has become my substitute. You know, one of the courageous Navy SEALs rescued those, one of those SEALs died when they were trying to rescue those boys. He died trying to rescue them. But Jesus' death is not like that. Jesus didn't die trying to save us. He died as a substitute for us. He paid the penalty for our lostness. That's what he did on our behalf. And then thirdly, and for your seat's sake, lastly, Christ is renewing us. Verse 2, we didn't read it. He writes and he says, to the saints and the faithful who are in Christ. If you want to understand your identity, you've got to first believe I was made by, by God for purpose and meaning with joy and, and to enjoy God and to enjoy others. That's why I was made. But I was lost and ruined. So Jesus came and he's rescued me. He's the hero of my story. You've got to have those things going, but you've got to have this one too. That Jesus Christ is renewing you. That you are, at this moment, he says, a saint. So you're a saint. Remember, I, I, used to, I have a hat I wear a lot. It says St. Thomas, just to remind myself, and to tell other people, to make sure Rachel calls me a saint. You're a saint. But at the same moment, you're a sinner. And you've got to hold those intentions. They connect with each other. You're a saint, but you're a sinner. At the same moment, 
If you think you're just a saint and you're not a sinner anymore, you're going to be surprised at your sin. And you're going to judge other people in their sin. If you think you're a sinner, if your first response to the question is, human beings is sinner, then you're not going to live with the freedom and the joy of the presence of God in your life now as a saint, with God now present in your life. And then verse 12, we get to share in the inheritance of the saints. You become what God fully intended you to be at the very beginning. And then verse 20, he will reconcile all things, heaven and earth. The gospel story begins, excuse me, let me start all over. The gospel story ends with an ending that does not end. Revelation 21, and then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice of the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Behold, I'm making all things new. It ends with an ending that doesn't end. God's renewing us and all things. How do we keep this alive? We have to worship this God. God is God. And in Him is the truest meaning of life. As we re-engage our hearts, as you're singing, and you can't just do it on Sunday morning, but as you're re-engaging your life in worship, you recalibrate your mind that God's God. And He is the God over all things. We have to be in community with one another. You can't, do, you can't interpret your story by yourself. You've got to have other people that are, who are walking with you and talking with you about where you are. You've got to have the Bible. You've got to have prayer. You've got to be on mission. So we don't find our core identity from what others think of us or even what we think of ourselves, but by what this story tells us. And they operate in an ongoing way in our life. I'm made. I'm rescued. I'm being renewed. I'm made. I'm not self-made. I was rescued. I'm being renewed. Now, what would that look like if each of us that was our true core identity. If that was the, the true part of who if we were really living out of our core disciple identity. As an image bearer, well, it would change the way we view other people. They're made in the image of God too. It would change the way we deal with race and, 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 and poverty and slavery. It would shape the way we take criticism. We, we wouldn't be crushed when people criticize us. If, if, you were in a, if you were in this major car accident, you know, and, and, and you know, your car's all smashed up, the airbag goes off and everything, and you're standing, out, you're standing out in your car, and it's all smashed, and you're alive, and you've got blood coming down from your nose and all that stuff and everything, and somebody walked up to you and said, you know, that shirt you have on, it doesn't match those shoes. Would you care at that moment? Because you'd just been rescued from death, right near death. What they said, see... If we truly get our core identity, it will change the way we view all sorts of things. It would change. It, if we lived with joy and related to God instead of fear that God somehow was going to get us if we didn't do enough, would that change the way you live life? In freedom. 
shape the deal, we deal with loss, the shape we deal, the way we would shape the way we deal with anxiety, would reshape the way we raise our children, teaching them what they're really living for. Listen, living out of your core disciple identity is essential to you enjoying life with God and with others. Let's pray. So at the start of this, I asked you, if you'd pray and ask God would speak to you, would you respond to God now in any way that he spoke to you to thank him? To say sorry for the things that you're truly living for or to, by faith, ask God to help you to live according to these realities? Would you respond to God by thanking him and rejoicing that he's the one renewing us, that you don't even have to renew yourself? He's doing it. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.